You're listening to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. You can explore over 200,000 works on artuk.org and socialize with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. I really love hearing your thoughts and ideas around the podcast, so if you have something to share, please be sure to use hashtag ArtMattersPodcast to chat with us. There's a common belief that people are either left or right-brain thinkers, logical or creative. The idea is that the left hemisphere of the brain controls analytical thought, while the right controls artistic ability. According to this idea, people fall into one category or the other, and this explains their natural talents and inclinations. A 2013 study shows that, of course, people use both hemispheres of the brain, and it's possible to have an aptitude in, say, art and science. A lot of people probably think of art and science as being opposite disciplines, so I thought it would be interesting to think about art found in scientific spaces. Being an art curator at the Science Museum is really exciting for me. I don't think I actually particularly see my role as any different to the other curators. That's Katie Barrett, curator of art collections at the Science Museum London. We're all working with interesting objects that have histories that are visual and material and technical Um, and we're all interested in those objects having cultural context so I suppose it's just the proportion of the visual versus the technical that um, that we're looking at differently. So I come from a background that mixes history and art, history of art and history of science and I think there's actually a lot of overlap in those disciplines Um, and this is something that uh, a historian of science called Charlotte Slay has written quite a lot about as well because both history of science and history of art are essentially interested in how objects and knowledge are culturally constructed and that's something that is maybe easier for us to understand in history of art we know that um, visual objects are a product of their culture and I think actually one of the roles that art in the science museum can play is to help people understand that that's also something relevant to how they think about science as well as how they might think about art. The museum includes an incredible assortment of objects from room-sized computers to spacesuits. So I was interested to know the museum's perspective on the relationship between art and science and the role that art plays in the wider collection. In terms of the collections of the Science Museum group, uh, we think about art very broadly. Um, Possibly the term visual culture might be a better way of thinking about it because our art collections range from Uh, paintings to stamps to cigarette cards to sculpture so there's a real range of material Um, Mm -hmm. but what's important for me is that the art collections aren't about making science accessible or visualizing it they're really about um, how art and science have informed each other I suppose so uh, to give you an example one of our best known works uh, which people can see on art uk is a painting called colbertdale by night which is by the french artist philip jacques de lucerberg painted in 1801 and it's really an absolutely archetypal image of the industrial revolution so it's full of um, flames and smoke and uh, it looks very busy but also possibly slightly hellish um, and it's of um, a place near Ironbridge in Shropshire, which is now seen as the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. So it's really a very important painting um, in terms of how we might now visualise the Industrial Revolution. 
And the painting's also interesting in terms of the history of the art collections at the Science Museum, uh, because when it was bought in 1952, it was actually quite unpopular with a lot of the curators. Oh, why is that? Uh, um, so it's actually one of my uh, one of my favourite stories to do with the <laughs> to do with the art collection. So the painting was actually bought by the then director, it was a man called Frank Sherwood Taylor, and he bought it and then tried to give it to um, one of the existing curatorial departments. And there wasn't a specific art collection or an art curator in the museum at that time. And this painting actually partly led to the creation of that. Um, because Sherwood Taylor tried to give the painting to the Department of Metallurgy um, because of uh, the industrial uh, subject matter. And um, there's a whole series of memos between him and the Keeper of Metallurgy discussing the painting. And the Keeper of Metallurgy essentially refused to have it because he didn't think it was an accurate portrayal of metallurgy as a process. What Um, is metallurgy? (laughs) So metallurgy just meaning... um, the science of metals, essentially. So okay. um, in the Industrial Revolution, it would be to do with how they're processed and used. Um, and uh, so he wrote to the to the director saying that he thought it would be um, uh, detrimental to the national and international reputation of the science museum to exhibit something which was not accurate. Oh, wow, that's pretty severe, isn't it? Well, yeah, that, that's what I thought. And um, But luckily, the director wrote back to him that he thought this kind of representation was an important um, kind of supplement or balance to uh, the more factual part of the collections, then it would fire the imagination of the visitor. So I might not put it quite like that anymore, but I think it makes the important point that um, the painting gives us a cultural understanding of the Industrial Revolution and that it has a power in terms of how we now think about it that is beyond any question of whether it's accurate in the kind of industrial processes that it portrays. On that idea of accuracy, there are many occasions where artists use art as a way of accurately representing their scientific ideas. Leonardo da Vinci is a classic example of a polymath who, in addition to being a gifted painter and architect, kept journals of his studies in anatomy and engineering. One could argue that his artistic skills helped to facilitate his scientific explorations. I wondered how the Science Museum incorporates this kind of work into its exhibitions. We have had uh, focused art exhibitions in the past, but these days it's it's more about um, it being part of a broader cultural story to do with science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have an exhibition coming up, um, opens very soon on the 6th of October, that uh, is about the sun. And there's a whole element of that exhibition that is specifically about how visually has been part of how we've understood the sun over time. So what kinds of pieces are are featured in that exhibition so um one of the uh paintings that's in that exhibition um which again people can see on art uk which i'm particularly fond of is a painting of a sunspot in fact there are two paintings of sunspots by um james naismith who was a scottish engineer so people might have heard of him as the inventor of the steam hammer which was a um, essentially a steam-powered hammer which revolutionized industrial processes Mm. but Naismith was also uh, an artist and astronomer. He was actually the son of the landscape painter, Alexander Naismith. And after he'd made his fortune in industry in Manchester, Naismith retired to uh, work on astronomy and art. And he focused particularly on um, his interest in the surface of the moon and also the surface of the sun. And he was the first 
uh, astronomer to both recognise that the surface of the sun um, is uneven. Um, it's something that we would now call granulation, which uh, essentially is a, you can see a series of cells on the surface of the sun, which show how um, heat is moving by convection on the surface. Mm. Um, but he not only recognised that for the first time, he was also the first person to try to um, present it visually. And um, the painting that we have, or the paintings that we have in the exhibition, show that he um, he decided that he thought the sun had a particular kind of texture, which he called a willow leaf shaped filament. Um, and I think it's really interesting that when you look at the paintings, you can see the way he's using his brush strokes to try mm -hmm. and kind of understand how those filaments work, how the surface of the sun works. So the paintings that he's making are actually part of his process of understanding what he's seeing looking through the telescope and then he used those images as part of the communications that he sent to places like the Manchester Philosophical Society to tell them about his findings um, because a granulated surface was was very hard to see um, at the time it was contested for a long period but Naismith is now seen as being a pioneer in terms of how he saw that and I love the fact that the paintings are really part of the process of how he established his knowledge. Yeah, and how he represented his um, his findings. That's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but how did he look at the surface of the sun? Because this is in the 19th century. Did he have some kind of crazy glass on his telescope that would allow him to do such a thing? Because I'm thinking now you can't even look at a eclipse or what have you and he was staring at the sun long enough to, <laughs> to paint it sure so that there is a type of um telescope i don't know if this is what naismith used but it was invented um a couple of centuries previously which essentially um allowed you to, pro to project the image of the sun onto paper so you could look at the paper instead of the sun if that makes sense Staying on the topic of the sun, there's another artist who used art as a way of documenting sunsets and the atmospheric effects of a major 19th century event. We've got a whole series of pastel sketches of sunsets. I don't mean to keep making this about the sun, it just happens to be what I've uh, thought about mm -hmm. a lot recently. Um, so uh, listeners may know that um, in 1883, uh, Krakatoa, the volcano, famously erupted and caused a huge amount of um, particulate matter to be in the atmosphere for a good uh, two or three years after the eruption, which made really spectacular sunsets appear all over the world. And um, an artist called William Ascroft uh, was particularly interested in the kind of palette that um, appeared in these sunsets and trying to, I suppose, categorise, have a what I suppose you might call a scientific understanding of the colours that he was seeing. Um, and we have over 500 studies in pastel that he made of the sky over those years to try and understand it. And he was doing this from an artistic perspective. Um, but obviously scientists at the time were very interested in the eruption and its effects. And when the Royal Society uh, or scientists from the Royal Society, when they published um, a report on the eruption in 1888, I think it was, um, they actually used they chose Ascroft's images as most representative of about, and they used the latest lithographic technology to be sure that they could um, represent the, the kind of colour analysis that he'd been doing as well as they could in, in the different form of print as opposed to his pastels. 
It's fascinating that these pastels now serve as a record capturing a specific event in history. Just as art can be used to document information, it can also be used to represent new ideas. We also have um, in the collection, these are on long-term loan from the Royal Meteorological Society. We have a whole series of sketches of clouds, um, and they were made by a man called Luke Howard, who um, was the person who really created the classification and names of clouds that we still use today. So um, created the science of clouds himself. And the sketches are part of how, again, how he made those decisions. So we've got um, over 50 of them. They're all um, drawn studies with wash that he made of different cloud formations. Again, trying to capture the different kinds of clouds he was seeing and and come up with a categorization. Now everyone refers to, I mean, I'm thinking of them now, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to recall um, (laughs) my lessons from elementary school. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you have things like Cirrus or Cumulonimbus. Um, They're probably the the best known ones. And and yes, those are his names that he developed um, through the kind of studies that, um, that we have in the collection. When it comes to commissioning new works for the collection, the museum likes to take an open-minded approach that looks beyond some of the more obvious links one might think about. I suppose there are lots of different ways in which commissioning feeds into both our displays and our collections. Um, It's not always specifically about a way of making people think about science. Sometimes it's a good opportunity to bring in voices that are missing from the collection. So... Last year we had a season called Illuminating India and we commissioned the artist Shaila Kamari Berman to create a series of pieces around that that were broadly responding to um, the science, Indian science and culture in the exhibition, um, from, but from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sun exhibition that I mentioned, we've also commissioned a Brazilian artist to design the poster for that. So that's much more... I suppose thinking about his graphic response to the idea of the sun, but also obviously a Brazilian uh, modern artist, which is not an area that the collections covered previously. Mm-hmm. A lot of our earlier commissions, so the museum had a, a designated um, contemporary arts program in the 90s and, and 2000s that did a lot of commissioning for our permanent galleries that were produced then. And a lot of those focused on bringing in different perspectives on themes like identity. Um, so we have a gallery called the Who Am I Gallery that has works responding to those themes by artists like Anthony Gormley and Marlene Dumas. And we also worked a lot with artists who were working with new digital technologies because obviously their interest in, in those kind of technologies overlaps a lot with um, the kind of collecting we would do around um, new technology in general. So it seems like a very integrated relationship between art and science um, that that the Science Museum takes, you know, looking at processes or different ways that people may naturally incorporate science into their craft. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's about about where art and science have naturally overlapped, I suppose, or so where it's thinking about why and how they've painted the way they have, and then about how those images have um, kind of, uh, I suppose, reflected back onto how people have thought about the science that relates to them. So it's a, it's got to be a cycle, I think, for, for an artwork to be interesting. For me, in the context of the Science Museum, it has to have a kind of weight in terms of both what it's telling you about the art, but what it's telling you about the science. 
It's interesting to hear different approaches of melding the disciplines of art and science. It's not a matter of left or right brain thinking. There's clearly a symbiotic relationship between creativity and scientific exploration. One of the things I think is interesting of people like Howard or Naismith is that they're, they're using all the tools at their disposal to try and understand the world around them. Um, and they're seeing drawing, painting, visual analysis as, um, as one of those tools. And, you know, they, they're creating images that we would now see as very technically accomplished and art objects, but they're art objects that are doing scientific work as well. Um, and, in, you know, in Howard's case, uh, his work on clouds and his, his imagery went on to influence landscape painters like, like Constable or Turner. So he has a, a legacy um, in what we would consider two very different um, disciplines today, but coming out of the same uh, drawings on paper. The exhibition, The Sun, Living With Our Star, opens at the Science Museum London on the 6th of October and runs through the 6th of May, 2019. There's also a book for the exhibition called The Sun, 1000 Years of Scientific Imagery, where you can view beautiful imagery around the science of the sun. If you head over to artuk.org, you can see the works that we discussed in this episode and also take a peek at other paintings in the Science Museum's collection. If you're new to Art Matters, you can catch up on this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're in the app, please be sure to rate and subscribe to this series. Thank you so much for listening and join us next time.